Okay, the following is for reference only. Welcome to the Private Press Episode 3. The Private Press Podcast aims to take a closer look at some of the records that have had an impact on us over our lives. Today we are discussing Fugazi's 1998 album, End Hits. The record was released on April 28, 1998 on Discord Records, which has a catalog number of 110 for you nerds keeping track out there. Uh, the album was self-produced by the band and longtime collaborator, collaborator excuse me, Don Ziantara. The band spent time writing and recording end hits from March to September 1997, where they continued their studio explorations from their previous album, Red Medicine, which resulted in some mixed reactions from critics and fans. While reactions to end hits were mixed over 20 years ago, the record is now seen as a creative breakthrough for the band as they became more comfortable in the recording studio environment, paving the way for the next album, 2001's The Argument. In addition to our thoughts on end hits, we have an interview with Fugazi bassist vocalist Joe Lally, who shares what it was like to be in the band at the time of making the album. All right, um... Fugazi, the band that's kind of always been around for us. And um, how lucky that we got to live in a Fugazi era. Exactly. Yeah, like we were talking about at the beach yesterday. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, how, how lucky we were, one, to see them play, two, to be informed by their music and have that be part of our, uh, you know, youth. And uh, um, I, I feel kind of bummed for a lot of younger people, one, who maybe haven't gotten in the band and or live in an era where Fugazi isn't a thing. Yeah, um, when when I think back at bands I missed, um, you know, there's a huge list, but bands that I was present for and saw in their prime, Fugazi, I'm definitely grateful for that. Um, you know, they're going to go down as one of those bands that, you know, change music. Can I can I be bold and say they're the most important uh, underground American band of all time? That's a pretty bold statement. Um, yeah, it's bold, but I I, I could I could back that. Um, but why? I mean, I, I mean, could... there's so many reasons why the, the, the political aspect, the, the way they've kind of changed punk, hardcore, post-hardcore, whatever you want to call it, how they like changed the music scene in so many ways by just being forward uh, in their musical expression. Uh, I think you know the micro economy that they created about being able to put out your own records and keep it very cheap. The shows being very cheap, and you know, no band had that much sway in American underground music culture, right? So many bands are trying to get noticed and trying, doing whatever it takes to get on that next show or do this. They did everything themselves, obviously, you know, with the punk pioneers before them and in the bands they were in, creating the infrastructure for it. But Fugazi became its own thing in its own world that was separate from so many other bands at that time. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, the most important contribution from them is um the diy ethic or do yeah Yeah, you got it been a long day um yeah i think that um that component of the band definitely um you know is something that that will be written about 
the most. I mean, because they've done things on their own terms since day one, um, and it, everything is just completely authentic about their approach. Um, and he, and again, you get like you mentioned the uh, the five dollar shows. Um, the records were always cheap; um, they were never overpriced. Um, all ages shows, yeah. so accessible to everyone. Yeah, um, they they kind of took what the Black Flag model, the SST model, and made it work where SST is kind of polarizing, especially to bands that were signed to the label. But the infrastructure, Black Flag helped, especially like looking at touring and starting your own label. That's where that started, and Discord pretty much perfected that. And it's still standing today. I mean, both labels are standing, but Discord is still putting out new music. Yeah, and there's there's no real comparison in modern terms to that infrastructure, that, that micro-economy, um, it's, it's a unique time and place. And again, going back to what we said already, like how lucky were we to live in a time where Fugazi records could come out and we saw them play and, you know, it was something that was important to our generation. Right. When, when you get into the sound of the band too, um, it's, it's like their, their own genre yeah. of music. Um, over the years, people have, I've read things like if you're a fan of Fugazi, check this out. And I just can't take those comparisons yeah it just doesn't work because i know it's what i get from fagazi is unique to fagazi it'll never be um replicated anywhere else so um yeah they're how, not just an indie band how could any band sound like fagazi you know how you know no one's gonna play uh you know the bass like joe lally no one's gonna play or you know sing like gee you know it, it's a super unique sound and so although it you know i, I think Going back to your point of like, you know, bands get little tags, sounds like Fugazi. For fans of Fugazi, right? I remember uh, Imakai did some sort of uh, interview or something where he wouldn't let, in the early Fugazi days, wouldn't let, uh, you know, the flyer say members of Minor Threat, mm. you know, because it already informs what you think it's going to be. You Definitely. Know? So like shattering those expectations. Well, I think anyone that puts a label for fans of Fugazi, that's pretty lazy. <laughs> it's bold. Well, I think it it's has just guitars a... and people sing on it. It sounds like Nirvana. Yeah, but I mean, there there are times where certain things like that work. You know, if you're into one band, there's a good chance you'll like another. Sure. I mean, it's not it's not an unreasonable approach. But I think um, it's just the same way with Bob Dylan. Um, if someone tells me to check out. Um, a guy with a guitar. Oh, you're into Dylan. You're probably going to like that. <laughs> There's room for the boss. Watch it now. Don't um, tell me what to do. But in any case, um, yeah, there have been times where I've, you know, hey, check out this band if you like that band. And it, and See, it's more personal than when a friend does it. When, like, right. If Kevin's going to recommend a band and he says it might sound like X, Y, and Z, I, I believe him. I trust him, you know, as opposed to some PR guy, you know. So. But then again, I know that neither of you guys would ever say, Sean, check out this band. They sound like Fugazi. Cause you would never put that on another band. Cause you know, that can't happen. Yeah. So Kev, yeah. how'd you get into Fugazi or how did you get into end hits or what? Where, where, tell us. Oh, that's a good question. So after thinking about it and letting it marinate for a while, my first exposure to Fugazi was through bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana during Pearl Jam's unplugged Eddie Vedder wrote, um, Fugazi on his arm with a Sharpie, which looking like back... While, while they were playing, while he they was were writing playing, it? Yeah. It wasn't already there? Yeah, and you, 
which is looking back is kind of weird, but I wondered what that was. And then, yeah, same thing with Nirvana, Kurt Cobain on his shoe. He had Fugazi written on it. And you're like, well, there's that name again. What's that band? And we didn't. This you know, is not a Fugazi shoe. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. And then, and then in middle school, this kid had uh, the Fugazi shirt, the bootleg shirt that was, you know, in Rolling Stone mag. Remember in the, the back of the magazines that have all the T-shirts, the Fugazi one. You guys don't remember that? I, I didn't. Rockabilia, have, I think is. The I name. did. I was too punk rock. You for could Rolling get. Stone. You could get the like the Slayer shirts, the Metallica shirts. I used and, to read Rolling Stone, but um, I don't recall. Maybe um, it wasn't in Rolling Stone, but maybe it was Spin. Uh, right. But yeah, maybe, you know, and then also dating myself, we didn't have the internet. So, and I didn't have a job being 12 or 13 years old, so I couldn't go buy CDs or records. That being said, my first time hearing Fugazi was through my, my good friend, Eamon's older brother, who was like a deadhead. And at the time, you know, we weren't into the Grateful Dead and he was like, yo, bro, you, man, you got to check out Fugazi. It's, it's Ian from Minor Threat. And we're like, oh yeah, well, we love Minor Threat. And he played 13 songs for us, and we were just, we weren't open to it at the time. Like, I was just, and maybe consider the source, and sorry, sorry, Dave, if you ever hear this, but you, you know, we, we just weren't ready for it. So it wasn't until later, and especially like playing music and playing shows and getting into really playing guitar, someone's, I forget who it was, it's just like, oh, you would really like Fugazi, and then going from hearing Repeater and like, oh, oh, wow. And then I remember not liking uh, Steady Diet that much. And I think that's mainly because of the way it sounded. But from there, yeah, it was just the band that was always there and just who I miss now (laughs) because they're not there. I miss them too. I mean, I feel I I got into them about sophomore year in high school and I don't remember exactly who, what, where. Yeah. But I do remember 13 songs and obviously Waiting Room and just how infectious that was to my brain at the time and... You know, at, at that time in my life, I was a, a musical sponge and I was getting sounds from all kinds of different places. And that one hit in a different way that other bands didn't. And it really uh, ex- excited me in a way to want to learn more about this band. And so that was the starting point. And, you know, I, I got in hits. I think after it, it came out, I w- wasn't, you know, first week or something it was probably sometime after i got it used i think on cd and so it was either in 98 or 99 that i got in hits and i I remember even at the time really digging it but not really knowing why right yeah so for me and on the kill taker was my first exposure to the band um early on in middle school again uh it had the you know fagazi had the singer of minor threat so i needed to hear it Clearly, they're two different bands. They don't sound anything alike. Um, and the first time, when I bought that CD, I bought it at a local record store, Vinyl Solution. Um, they used to have these midnight sales where they would they would close down maybe around 11 at night. And this was their first midnight sale. I, I remember that. And um, they would reopen at midnight and, you know, you know, p- people would buy records. Um, and get wasted. What was the, the sale? Was it like 20%? It, um, depended on... I think there was 50% it, like, on certain it, things. <laughs> And and as the night went on, as the PBR flowed, yes, the, things got wild. Yeah, so um, it's funny you mentioned that because I it wasn't for new releases. Yeah, and right. That Fagazi CD was a new release because I remember taking it up there, and, and whoever rang me up was like, oh, "I can't give you a deal," and I'm like, "I, I don't care, whatever." Because at the I had to sneak out of my friend's house to go to that sale. My mom told me I couldn't go because it was midnight. I was in eighth grade, so I slept at my friend's house, and we. 
crawled out his window and real rode our bikes up there. But anyway, so, um, but the first proper Fagazi record record I bought, like as a fan was red medicine, um, and saw them on that tour. And, uh, and, where was that? Uh, the shrine, the shrine, I believe 95. Um, yeah, it was, was that it? I think, did you go to that? Kevin? No, but I, I think it is the shrine thanks um, to the live series. Yeah. Uh, and, um, they opened with the 10th track on red medicine. I don't remember the title of it. Um, Anyways, but uh, so by the time End Hits came out, I was, you know, head over heels into Fagazi and, um, and yeah, bought it that day and never uh, looked back. N- no, I, I, cause by the time I had read Medicine, I had done, you know, I picked up Repeater and all the other stuff. And um, so, yeah, I was a, I was knee deep into that band and um, picked up that nice slab of gray wax. Oh, so you bought the record then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for I, sure. I bought the um, CD, which was which was gold. I remember you guys remember that the CD is actually gold. I didn't. I no, you didn't. I never. I never had the disc. So I, yeah. So I bought mine in vinyl too, like okay. a couple weeks after it came out, and um, yeah. So when did you get it, Charlie? I, I don't remember. It was ninety eight or ninety nine. I can't really tell you. And I think I got it at Moby Disc, and it was used. And I didn't have all the previous Fugazi at that time. You know, I had 13 songs. I think I had Steady Diet. Might have had Repeater. And so um, this record, you know, it was one that, and again, because I didn't have all the Fugazi records. It was new, and so I just started playing it. And I don't, I don't know why it, it stuck with me at the time. And again, this is, you know, it's 98. It's late late 90s. Music's changing and evolving. And I think my... Music taste was slowly changing and evolving as well, where, um, you know, I was kind of stuck in a punk hardcore sort of paradigm or sound that was kind of all I listened to. And as 98, 99 rolls around, I start listening to other things. And I think uh, End Hits with its production and uh, unique sounds kind of, you know, tickled my ear a little bit in a way that I was like, this is cool. This is interesting. I'm, I'm not sure at the time, especially, I'm not sure why I like this, but this is different and I like it. And I, I think part of it too, um, you know, you talk about the production is in hits sounds better than a lot of previous, to my ears, to than a lot of previous uh, Fugazi records. It sounds thicker, fuller. Lush. Yes, lush. And I I feel like some of the earlier... I like how you said that, Kevin. It's my radio voice. A lot of the earlier Fugazi albums, especially on CD, to me, sound very thin. Right. And if you listen to a lot of CDs that came out, say, from like 88 to 95-ish or so, a lot of them have a similar production, especially if it's not like a major label, big budget, where they can make that real dense sounding for the radio thing. Like it, it, they can kind of sound thin, and I felt like a lot of earlier Fugazi records sounded like that. So it hits really, you know, kind of hit my imagination differently because it just sounded different. It sounded cool to me. It's interesting that you talk about um, kind of the, you know, your musical interests at the time were punk and hardcore because mm-hmm. that's exactly where I was too. Yeah, and um, Fugazi didn't, at that time at least, um, it wasn't this. They didn't act as a gateway into. Um, you know, different bands, different sounding records or whatever. It was, it was almost as if they were an exception. Like I'm still going to listen to my punk and hardcore and then I'll be into Fugazi because obviously they get the credibility because of their connection with 
minor threat and it's Ian and all that stuff. But, um, I really didn't hear the record and think like, wow, you know, what more can I, you know, what, not what more can I get out of music, but, um, I still continued on my punk and hardcore. Yeah. You were still in path, place. Yeah. Um, and then had some weird artsy Fagazi shit. Yeah. So, so that was like an, an artsy deviation from your, your, oh, you know, your, your youth crew and the hardcore stuff for sure. you were listening At to. At the time. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, I I'm, I can't think of any band um, that would be, you know, that would have been not yeah. similar to Fagazi, but just outside yeah. of that realm. Yeah, you know what's it's weird. Like just looking back in my memory of you, to me, it's like it's not surprising, you know, at that time that you weren't listening to whatever is over here. And you know, like it just I remember Sean and, and being in your car and listening to music. And I remember I have a lot of good memories in your car listening nice. to music. And so I, I, I remember that pretty clear. Um, I don't know. What else, Kev? Well, uh, Sean mentioned the gray vinyl. Did yes. you guys want to talk about that since this is a record podcast? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, pretty unusual for discord to press color vinyl. They, they didn't really get into that whole collector nerd game. They didn't, you know, the limited pressing stuff wasn't anything of their concern. They they made music. They wanted it heard. They made it in large quantities. They kept it affordable. They kept it in print. And that still goes on to this day for the most part. Um, but uh, I do recall at the time looking online that there was 10,000 of those pressed, which I thought w- was perfect because I, I didn't think that they would press something limited. So... Um, but in any case, it was a real treat to see Discord do something like that at the time. Like, wow, this is this is this is pretty cool. I like that on the back of the record it says nine dollars posted paid. It was only nine dollars to get this record, which you know in twenty twenty one just sounds hard to wrap your head around because you know just standard shipping today, even though it's like three dollars and thirty three cents for media mail, you're, you're going to spend five bucks at least on shipping. And so to think that you could get a record for nine dollars shipped is unreal that's one of um the key ways to distinguish pressing variants in the discord catalog really yeah so um obviously early on with minor threat there's different colors of the covers and stuff so there's that's more obvious but um in the 80s and early 90s there would be um you know like for example the first fagazi lp um self-title or 13 songs or self-title or whatever it what is that official record? Because Margin Walker is attached to the CD. It's an EP, so there are two EPs. Okay. Are- um, in any case, but I think like the you know the price on the first press might be like five bucks. Yeah. And then now it'll say like twenty five, something like that. But um, but yeah. In any case, it's pretty cool that that it's on there. So. Yeah. yeah, and it was made in England, and so it was still cheaper for them to press it in another country, France. It, this one was made in England, but some of the other ones were ah, made in France. Got it. Well, yeah, a lot of records are pressed, like even today in like the Czech Republic or wherever yeah. they can mass produce things. And yeah, the only time it really adds inflation to the price is shipping it back right. to the United States for distribution. It's crazy how much this record is still. Which, wait, what record are we talking about? In Hits. <laughs> this, you know, In Hits is still in the lexicon of Fugazi records. It's still not appreciated in the way that, uh, you know, others that have just become classics. And, and I wonder what you guys think of why that is. Because, you know, I looked up a different websites and they had their rankings of best or worst to best. And In Hits was 
always last yeah, or second to last. Doesn't do well. Um, that's a mystery to me because uh, for me, um, I loved it immediately. The people that I knew that liked Fugazi were into it. So there was no, so my little circle, um, it was the new Fugazi and it's great and we love it. Um, however, I've read similar websites and reviews and whatnot. And you know, there's this kind of emphasis on they've gotten it. They went into like more experimental sounding things and and it just doesn't sound like, you know, or it just kind of gets out there for a lot of listeners. And I think that, I think that's true. Um, but I, I don't think and hits, was the record that introduced that. I think Red Medicine exactly. started that. So um, I've always felt that if if you're a Fagazi fan, if you're a Fagazi fan of the first record and you hear N hits, I could understand why you, you're not going to... It could be different. Like if you didn't listen to anything in between. Yeah, yeah, but if you make it through Red Medicine, I don't... You know, N hits should just be another great record. Um, yeah, I agree. And in talking about the experimental aspect of it and people saying that it's out there. That's what made me in, get into the record. That's what I, when I discovered that this was a Fugazi record I could listen to on headphones and trip out and listen to the different production. There's things. a lot going on there. Yeah. For sure. And that's definitely one of the things and being a guitar player too, I think this is kind of the height of their guitar nerdery. Like their the interplay between Guy and yeah. Ian is pretty crazy and gets to new heights and like I said, being a guitar player and listening to that stuff, it's, it's nuts. For me, it's also, um, when they talk about it being out there, I think it's a real, really accessible record. I don't find it. At, I think that the sequencing, um, might lead people to think it's kind of a more, you know, experimental record, but, um, I, I really think there's just kind of hit after hit at, at some, you know, at some point. When did no it, pun intended. When do the end, yeah. the hits end? Uh, well, um, we'll get into that. Well, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's talk about that title real quick. So the hot rumor at the time was Fagazi's ending. And that's their coded way of saying goodbye. However, that wasn't the case. And in fact, um, end hits refers to literally end hits. Right. Uh, Kevin, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's if, if you listen to the end of the record, um, about a minute after the last song, F slash D, you can hear actual end hits. Like, and that's, they were not able to perfect the, the false ending of the song, No Surprises. So in the middle of that song, it stops and then it goes to the outro. So what you hear is the band attempting to go back. So Ian said that, like, you know, using technology of going back and, you know, cutting the razor blade and being able to edit it, but they were never able to get it to their satisfaction. So they just kept it the way it is, the way they played it live in the studio, and which sounds great. So that's, like, their joke and hits. But also in an interview at the time in 98, Ian said that it also had to do with the decade coming to a close and the new millennium and... See, I, I had no idea why that was tacked on at the end. I had no Makes idea. Sense. You know, it like to me in my ears, just looking at uh, end hits an instrument, the little bit at the end, it's like, oh, I could see that being on instrument where it's just sort of an interlude or a weird oh, right. little thing going into a song or something. But that's that's I'm glad you guys cleared that well, up for and, my, for me. And to the untrained ear, I just heard it and didn't even think anything. I oh, was really? just like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah it's like, like Fugazi got know? in with the secret track uh, yeah, fad right, of, the, of the 90s. There you go. They left, they're just recording and they hit the drums. Okay. Can I can I touch on in, instrument I'm, real quick? I'm glad you brought that up. Charlie. Okay, well, I was just, in, in my brain, I think one of the reasons why end hits 
continues to be such an important record for my ears is probably a little bit to do with instrument and having so many of the in-hit demos on that record. Six. Six, yeah, it's a lot. So it's like, if you're listening to instrument, you know, you're, you're hearing different versions of some in-hit songs and those songs just, you know, you're listening to more, it's getting deeper into you. And so I think that had a lot to do because I got, I got instrument when it came out in 99 and I listened to it a lot. And so I think that had a lot to do with my appreciation for in-hits. Same. And, and how I got instrument, I didn't even know that it was out was I ran into you, Sean, at OCC and you were like, Hey, have you, have you seen the Fugazi movie? Have you bought the soundtrack? And I was like, no, I guess I'm going to go to Moby Disc right after school and grab that. Moby Disc? Why? Because uh, there was one right by OCC there. Oh, was there? Yeah. Oh, I don't recall Moby Disc up there. Oh, I mean, it was Costa Mesa that was uh, off of um, Harbor. Harbor, right where Harbor, Harbor turned into uh, Newport Boulevard. Yeah. I remember. All right. Yeah, so that's um, where I got that. And, and what I like about Instrument is you, these demos are pretty wildly different from what ended up on the record. Mm-hmm. So it's like whatever mindset you're in, like if you're into like a more like mellow kind of thing, you can throw on those demos. I am. Um, yeah. Instrument, I think is great. I don't share the, uh, the love that you guys have for it. One, because for um, shame. I know <laughs> it's, it's weird. I like having the, um, window into the process and seeing how things evolve. Um, and once we get to, you know, the track by track, um, kind of unpacking the the songs on the record, there is one song that um, I don't prefer the instrument um, version by any means, but uh, how they approached it, um, I wish I would like to have heard how um, it would have unfolded if they kept what they were doing on instrument going versus what we got on in hits. Hmm. Um, and I like when bands or musicians release demos just because um, it's fascinating to see, you know, the the process of something coming together. Um, but, uh, it's, it's never, I mean, we've talked about, you know, when they rank the best tours Fagazi records, I wouldn't consider Fug- uh, instrument a, a proper Fagazi LP. It's, um, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not all original music, you know, so I get it. It's not a proper LP, but at this, at the same time, it would be hard not to put it in there and to rank it somewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think for us too, Charlie and I, when I lived here, we would throw that on pretty frequently and just list. That's a, I like the way it flows for being. Well, maybe odds I and should ends. have lived here with you guys. <laughs> I don't think three beards can live. Yeah, I think the neighbors would have thought something weird was <laughs> three, going three on. Three men here. with beards? Start a record with that. Yeah. But um, looking at it, it's, it's fun. Totally. The documentary is amazing. Yeah. You know, or the film. Well, and, and, and going back to end hits and then even the argument, um, in a recent interview with Ian, he said, uh, and I quote, if you look at that and end hits in the argument, I think those are our best records. If you ask me, they're the ones I'm most fond of. I would have to agree. I like that he says that about end hits. I've noticed with any band or any musician, their most recent work is always their favorite for obvious reason, uh, reasons, but um, he didn't have to include end hits. So I like that. Yeah, um, I do too. I because I, I think you really look at Red Medicine to end hits and the argument. You can really see the progression in them striving for something more in the studio. It's almost like the trilogy right mm-hmm, there. Right. Those three, and then um, so what would so what sacred what, trilogy? What was before? Yeah, definitely. What, and we're not including instrument in there, Sean. No, good. <laughs> um, I like instrument. Um, 
but anyways, and look, you know, I think a lot of it is, um, I don't play an instrument. I've never been in a band. So I think, um, I think that record, um, I think that record speaks to musicians more than it would speak to just casual listeners, um, in some capacity. So I, 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 I could see why, um, depending on the person it could fall. It's just, they absorb it differently. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the reasons why end hits was maybe not the favorite for some Fugazi fans has to do with, uh, I think just sort of, you know, we, we, some of those older guys than us, people, maybe the generation before us who came from the straight hardcore scene of the eighties and started listening to Fugazi from its inception, you know, you get to red medicine, you get to in hits and they sort of lose track. Like they want some of that stuff they heard on 13 songs, you know, that's, that's what really got them into the band. And I think sometimes like all of us, when a new record comes out, we have an expectation of what that sounds like. And, and as we get older, we realize we need to drop those expectations and appreciate this new piece of art. But for a lot of people who aren't necessarily, you know, hardcore music fans, they have an expectation of what this record should sound like. And in hits didn't sound like that to some people. Right. And well, I was, oh, go ahead. Well, I had a question. I agree, but, you know, I've always pushed the you know, the point that I think that's where red medicine gets agreed. Know. Okay. Cause I, I'm, I, cause I would present you with the question. Do you think there are people that follow Fugazi all the way through red medicine, heard and hits, and then are like, wow, I, this is too far out there for me. Red medicine I'm into, but I can't, you know, cause to me again, I think and hits has way more accessible. Yes. Music. To your, to your um, point. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think red, red medicine is more of an outlier in some ways because in in hits, it does have a, a few more of those abrasive and loud songs that really get you in that Fugazi feel. But, um, I think maybe, Sometimes you 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 follow a band and they put out a record and it's not your favorite and then they have a new one come out and you get excited oh maybe it's like that old record or something sure. so but they just continue they kind of double down on and they kept going they kept progressing sure. which yeah. is great in hindsight which in, in, in but in the Fagazi world should be expected I mean they've never um, they've never just done the same thing again and again right. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I was listening to No Effects and Guttermouth at the time. I, you know, everything was weird that wasn't you know punk rock at that time for me. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate Guttermouth. Wow. Yeah, gutter, come on. For, I H- forgot H- about H- Guttermouth. No, I had um, locals. I had <laughs> one of the first seven inches I ever puke balls. Orange with chicken box. Chicken box. That's a, wow. I'm gonna have to listen to some. This is a Fugazi tonight. podcast. All right, but chicken box is a jam. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my seventh grade jam for sure. I got that in like uh, neck deep and function and black spot and gutter mouth. Those are classics. Wow. Can I read a review real quick? A gutter mouth review. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I specifically had this gutter mouth review ready and go. All right, this is the AV Club, and this is for end hits. And it kind they're of credible. Eh, maybe. It, it goes slower. Dubby numbers seem to outweigh the, in quotations, rock songs, and the music continues in the experimental vein of the album's predecessor, Red Medicine. For this reason, in hits may come as a disappointment to some fans. The disjointed, fragmented nature of many of the songs makes you miss the taut, tense, ap- apocalyptic stuff for which F- Fugazi's known. Cool story. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, 
Okay. Like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what they heard. I, I'm um, just saying, I think. When was I, that written? Was that written in the was after the fact. This okay. is probably, I think this is early 2000s. I'm going to guess 2003. It was it's been out for a while. It seems thing. like that person just like picked, uh, you know, like compiled. Other reviews. Yeah. <laughs> it seems very put together. I mean, yes, that those are the most common complaints. Those are the most, um, and it, they, it does highlight a couple strengths and, that's all fun. I mean, I don't know. It's weird because I guess with Fugazi, their their opinion on reviews. I mean, they're so indifferent about that shit. Um, but but yeah, those are the reasons for sure why people felt. And, and listen, the record wasn't good. Everyone in this room might read a review, especially of a band they like, with a grain of salt, right? You might read it and be like, "Hmm, that's interesting," but you're gonna go check it out. I, I imagine. Two, with this record particularly, that people read some reviews and went, oh, okay. And sometimes reviews inform your opinion before you hear it. With reviews, though, so <laughs> if, if I'm a fan of any band, Fugazi or whoever, um, I will always hear the record. I mean, I, I read reviews for fun. I, yeah. li- I like talking music. I, it's why we're here. I like you know reading other perspectives. Um, they Sometimes they'll enlighten me on parts of a record that I just completely didn't even recognize. However, I will never t- read a review and avoid a record. I'm a fan. Yeah. Of. I just, I, I can't. Um, and maybe, yeah, it might've front loaded them a little. Like, That's what okay. I'm saying. Sometimes when you hear the hype or you hear, you know, with movies, right, you go, you, you hear about a review or people don't like it. It's going to inform your opinion in somewhat. You have some sort of weird expectation of what it sounds like. But a Fugazi fan should be better than that. So. You would hope so, but we live in a world where not everybody is a Fugazi fan. But then, it, that is true. But then again, you guys experienced um, the the lack of, I mean, people didn't like the record as much as the old stuff. I didn't. I didn't have that exposure. I don't know. But then again, I didn't have a lot of people that liked Fugazi. My brother did. He liked the record. Um, I believe Jeff, that was the first record he picked up because actually I remember, um, I remember when I got it, we listened to it, we put it on and he's like, wait, is this Fugazi? And he actually thought it was going to be more in the vein of minor threat just, just because, um, you know, he didn't really, I don't know why he hadn't heard Fugazi prior to that, but, um, but yeah, so everyone around me at the time really, really loved and hit. So, well, all right. So now that we've got our interpretations of the record, we've got the AV clubs interpretation. <laughs> that, that's an important one, guys. But, but no, I mean, that follows down the line of some other uh, sites. Um, now let's uh, let's hear what Joe Lally has to say about and hits and uh, apologies in advance for the audio quality. Joe was having some technical difficulties with his internet connection. Is he on dial-up? <laughs> yeah, you might. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to ask him next time. But um, here's our interview with Joe Lally. Enjoy. Fugazi was always going to be an episode, and uh, and his was the one that we decided on, just mainly because when it first came out the three of us were really really into it and it seemed like not a whole lot of our friends were into it until now uh-huh. it seems like kind of the black sheep when it came out and now it's something that people gravitate towards cool is, is that something that you ever noticed um i'm sorry is it something i what that that you noticed like was there did you notice the reaction to the record when it came out good or bad um, you know, we were pretty, by then we were pretty much into 
the whole swing of like just just trying to book shows and when we had enough music written we would get in and record it and we would tour it, you know we just we just worked um people were coming out to see us uh that were like you know that was always a very incremental change the people that came to season we started at the bottom you know we booked the very smallest shows even though people asked us about festivals from the very beginning you know they could i, I was telling somebody the other day i remember because i was living with ian uh at the time the band was beginning and i remember him getting an, a call in the office about like a hardcore festival in like uh hawaii you know and he was like uh, i got this call about a festival and i just wanted to let you know that um I just don't think like we're really a band yet, you know. And it seems weird to go to play a festival. And I was like, yeah, that, like I barely played live shows. Like at the beginning of the band, those were the most shows I ever played, you know. So I was kind of like, yeah, why don't we like become a band first before we go flying somewhere and like doing something? Which means you know we hadn't even we hadn't even really gone across the U.S. probably, you know. So um, we really just let things start from, you know, the smallest clubs and VFW halls and whatever to, to slowly change. And yeah, you know, so for us, the change that did occur was so incremental that it, it, it wasn't like there was this massive shift in what we did. It just slowly kind of gathered you know, so we just kind of worked on writing music, and then we went out and played. And we could go to Europe, and then the States, and then we'd go back to Europe, and then the States. And then we were able to go to, you know, uh, Japan and Australia. And then we'd go back to Europe, and then we'd do the States. Then we got to go to South America, and then we'd go back to Europe. And it was, <laughs> so it was, it was like, you just try to, like, whoever gave a shit, you tried to do things. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... So honestly, I have no idea. Album by album, like the the reaction, it's like people were coming to the shows and apparently people were buying the records. But I just did not give a shit whether people said they liked it or hated it. It's what people wrote really didn't mean a thing to me. It's I, so I don't have much of a memory of that kind of impression. You know what I mean? It's, Right. So with that being said, do you remember specifically with End Hits, are those songs that you guys played on the road? Did you road test that stuff or was that more stuff that was written in the studio? Yeah, like, we, you know, as a band, that, that was pretty consistent. That we wrote, we wrote things and if we, really, um, and if we really were feeling a song that was beginning but we didn't have words yet, we would play it as an instrumental you know what I mean? We, we definitely just put stuff out there as, as we wrote to try to understand how it felt to play in front of people. That was a way of kind of organizing what you were playing because you could, you could feel it differently and you could uh, critique it on your own because you were playing it in front of an audience. Man, it has us, it's a real benefit to be able to do that with new music. Um, I remember when, I remember when people started putting things up on YouTube, 
And Neil Young said, uh, you know, you used to be able to test things in front of an audience. And now when you play things for the first time and you're still deciding, people write, he doesn't know his own song. <laughs> I was like, boy, if that's Neil Young, man, everything's really gone to hell, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird it's a weird thing because it makes you less with everybody documenting everything, it just makes you less, you know, uh, inclined to do that stuff. It's funny because Kariki started to play and that was kind of one of the end's things, like <clears throat> since we're just doing these little shows because he's booking them a couple of weeks out, he's not trying to figure out how to get the most people into a place to see us. He's just trying to see if a different kind of a show can happen. And then when it does happen, you know, he puts a he puts up a little poster out front of the show and says, you know, we're asking people not to film because people haven't really seen us. And you're getting to see us for the first time. So think about how the other people will feel having never seen us. Right. I don't know. You know, as usual, it's like a big, like, fucking, you know, psychological uh, test, you know, into whether people can handle it. But I have to say, every show we did, we played like 12 shows. Nobody did it. People took photos on occasion, but nobody posted a video. And that was pretty great because I think people are just as interested. Oh, yeah. Try something different. And everything, as usual, keeps happening in exactly the same way for every kind of a band that I think people are interested to kind of be in on the uh, experiment of something something different going on. Right. And I mean, going back to that record, it's, it's a shame that you guys weren't able to, to tour it because it's great. Yeah, it's really exactly the timing. I mean, that was the month that Amy said, you know, it really feels like we should just go out once a week. <laughs> that, that timing couldn't have been worse. It was literally the month that everything shut down. Before that, everything was based on um, Carmine their son's uh, school holiday. So it was really going to turn into like every weekend we were just going to go out and do what we could and we just didn't. So, and then show after show after show and go play like five shows in a row or seven shows in a row and, you know, sort of travel because uh, Carmine would be out of school. So he'd be able to go with us. Yeah. So... For end hits, you did take songs and road test them. Um, were there any things that you brought to the record specifically that you wrote at home and brought to the studio? Ah, uh, me for end hits, boy. Um, you know that album is sitting right here. I'm trying to see here. So this was the album with. I pro. I mean, on my own part, I probably brought. Um, well, I do remember. No, there, isn't there one that I sing? Yeah, recap. So, re, so yeah, so recap Madonna was some, something that I would then bring, you know, I would work on a bit at home and try and make, uh, put the idea together, put together words and stuff. But um, uh, that went through a massive change. It was one kind of a song 
And then it, it actually got kind of put into more of my kind of a groove that al would allow me to sing. And so I absolutely changed the mood of the song in order to fit the words. It was a much more brash-like song that I was never going to be able to, like, scream over. I just, I don't yell and scream. I can't sing like that. And I certainly didn't know how to sing. I, I kind of learned. I made an effort to learn after the band was over, but uh, I really couldn't then. So that song for sure, but I do remember writing Floating Boy while visiting... Um, my significant other in Rome and uh, I was on a trip there and I borrowed our tour manager over there I borrowed his bass and I was sitting in a place where my um, my girlfriend worked and I was um, just kind of to hang out you know I had a bass with me and I, and, I, and I wrote that song there so Floating Boy came from that I kind of wrote the I wrote um, two, like two parts of that song to kind of get it initiated. Um, but you know, in normal writing, uh, a lot, like 99% of Fugazi writing went on in the practice space. Now this particular record, you've got, um, although I can't fucking see, <laughs> on this I'm pretty sure there's, this one has the, doesn't this have the things, yeah, closed caption was a demo idea and arpeggiator. Those were the two that kind of came in as, maybe, I don't know if Caustic Acrostic did too, but there were, there were uh, I'm not going to remember them all, but Brendan and Guy, I think, separately brought in demos they made in their house. And then uh, we were able to kind of look at them, you know, and then go, oh, okay, let's take that on as the four of us or whatever. And uh, and that was just something that occurred during that. I don't exactly know why that that kind of came up at that time. Um, maybe it's because I, I had gone, I had like taken a trip or and so people had some more time on their hands. I had no idea how that worked. But anyway, um, yeah, you kind of you kind of bring in ideas if you can come up with them. But I have to say that a lot, 90% of the writing with Fugazi is just going on in the practice space with the four of us swapping around ideas. You know, a bass line could come in from somebody and then it could be like, you know, that's, that's better as a guitar line. And then I would write a bass line and then somebody could bring in a guitar line that could be then changed into a bass line. I mean, there's just, there, there were no, like, rules about, I, ne I never was going to have, from the very beginning, I decided I would not have an attitude about, like, you know, oh, I didn't write that, because there were too many stories about DC bands, like, I don't know, people just finding all kinds of reasons for bands to have problems and <laughs> break up too quickly, and I was just like, I'm not going to have that attitude. Um, going back to what you're talking about, maybe a bass line or a guitar line being able to switch roles, uh, like the bass line for Five Corporations follows the guitar exactly. Do you remember if that was a bass line first or guitar? Because the way it sounds is super neat. 
that would be that would be an Ian thing, and it could have he could have written it on bass because Ian played. Ian was first a piano player, and then a bass player, and then a guitar player. So when he's thinking of what he's going to play on guitar, he's kind of he's kind of a being the idea with a bass line. It's it's definitely the way he works, and then we would. And then we would work towards whether things worked better that we're both doing that or, you know, that there's there's a point where we do it and then we switch roles or whatever, or I, you know, I then play some counter melody and then we join back up or, you know, whatever. But that was one of those things. It kind of sounds like a bass line. It totally sounds like an Ian bass line. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's a great... I love the way the bass and guitar sounds on that song. Mm -hmm. And it's different from your like kind of dubby style of like floating over like the more aggressive stuff I noticed. Yeah, Ian's Ian's totally writing, you know, what could could be construed as hardcore riffs, you know. <laughs> Ian's Ian always writing that kind of thing, you know. Um but we and we worked at plant you know, I always worked from the beginning to play absolutely to like mesh the things that we did we were going to play together we're going to it was going to be one sound you know so i always whatever his nuance was of how he delivered a riff like furniture you know that you know i i would do the you know the hammer on of the one three one three you know kind of thing those were things we just we just found early on like this sounds fucking cool when we do this together because he also allowed his guitar to have that kind of bassier sound to it anyway and we just it just turned into one heavy sound is you know it's just something we worked at that we liked yeah um going back to like arpeggiator and um closed caption those are songs that you mentioned that were demoed before what did you think of the idea of the two drums of brendan playing against himself yeah, they're, you know, the, the the demos just, you know, that they did were just totally interesting, which was really not a surprise because Brendan and Andy, you know, for them to sit around with a demo, they can come up with a whole fucking, like, new band, you know, making the idea of, like, demoing songs for them, they come up with um, really interesting shit. It's just, that's the way those guys are, and they had always been in bands together, and they're just, they're creative. Um, but I think, uh, I forgot, I'm trying to remember what your question was. Oh, just, just like your reaction to having the two drums, um, because that later evolved to you guys having Jerry Busher play and. Yeah. So that came, that, that had to come up somewhere during, you know, kind of in a way after the fact. I, I, you know what I mean? It, it, it like came up later that Jerry should also play drums to make that. I, I can't remember. He's not on this record, is he? No. It's the, I believe, I, I read that Brendan recorded two sets of drums. One of them he pitched up higher with the tape machine and then played against it, which he can, uh, which I mistook for a drum machine originally on closed caption. And it's just such a neat layered right. sound, and it sounds so different from what you guys have done previously. Right, and uh, and yeah, he was like something he fell on, like amusing himself, I'm sure. <laughs> and 
And then with Jerry being right there, I think there was just this idea of, uh, you know, the possibility there. And then we brought a super stripped down drum set that we could set up for Jerry to play. And so after this record, that that's probably when that started to sink in, like, you know, this would be really cool to be able to do. And then it moved into the next, the following record. Yeah. Um, so you guys recorded 13 songs for end hits. Do you remember if you had anything left over or was like everything that you recorded ended up on a record? I think that that usually was there if there would only be some kind of, uh, like I said, recap majority, there was an outtake, you could say, for that, because it was absolutely a different sounding version that was like way, you know, just a, loud, a much louder song, you know, it's much more relaxed sounding, the version on the record. And so there is a different version of that. But, uh, you know, if there was something else from that, it could have been used for instrument. Did it? I don't know. Did instrument come out before that record? No, instrument came out after. So it could have, if there was something left over, it could have come out after. Oh, right, yeah, because the demos were on the instrument. Yeah. So there could have been something. But, you know, there was. it was rare that we would actually complete have a song completed in its entirety without vocal. Like, no one would bother <laughs> writing vocals. I mean, the lyrics were always the last fucking thing, and then we'd have to, like, shape, reshape some of the music to fit the fucking vocals on. So the idea that there's a finished song that doesn't make it on a record is really, like, that's not going to happen. Alright. Understood. Um... But just... Just instrumentally, there may have been something, but I'd have to like comb through it all to try and understand. Yeah, so, um, Recap is the second song on a Fugazi record that you took the lead on, um, following by you on Red Medicine. What was your dynamic? What was the band dynamic when you were like, did you say, hey, I have a song and I want to sing it? Or were the rest of the guys, you know, asking you if you had a song, if you wanted to step up? Was, how did that work? Uh, I, you know, I, I definitely wanted, I wanted to sing on something. I just didn't, you know, know what I was doing. And who knows why they even accepted that. I have no idea. Um, there's a lot of horrible sounding live tapes of me trying to sing. Um, or at least sounds that way to me. But, uh, yeah, it's just something I really wanted to do. And they were kind enough to just allow me to do it. Um. It's just, I think it's just something that I've, I wanted to work into, you know, I guess I could just kind of feel it coming on. And then indeed when the band, you know, had, after we had done the last record, you know, I just still had all these ideas for music and words. And then I just went about trying to make them fit together until I got that out of my system. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny from a fan standpoint, um, you definitely don't hear that you are uncomfortable with your voice because it, it's it's a nice breakup between the two other voices in the band hearing your voice on those records. Well, I did, I did feel that, like, well, if I just kind of, you know, I started out trying to do things I couldn't possibly do um, and then just accepted, like, you know, you just have to be who you are. 
And then that allows for, like, I don't sound like them, so that should be pretty good. <laughs> you know what I mean? For the, for the band, because you want, I mean, you want different songs. We always want different songs on the record. We didn't want to sound like we were doing the same thing over and over again. So I think to have that different element coming from a vocal aspect, you know, within the group was like, you know, it was, like, it was a plus for the band because it just allowed a different thing to happen. So, yeah, they're great songs, and especially like going with end hits and then the argument. Those are especially lately those two albums I go back to the most, and just find new things to listen to. And like you guys started, it, to me it sounds like you started experimenting with Red Medicine, adding kind of like collage type stuff to the recordings, and then end hits seems more like a production like you guys were really aiming towards stuff people can maybe hear on headphones and then um that like kind of culminated with the argument i don't know if i'm off base but that's just how it, it feels pretty, yeah pretty pretty correct because we tried early on to do something um in the studio you know uh steady diet and it just felt like such a, you know, a disaster. We just didn't feel like we did a good job. And so we, then we were kind of afraid to approach that. But there was that autonomous feel of the band anyway, where it was like, we should be doing this ourselves. And then to feel like we failed at it was to you know, try to avoid it. So that went on for a couple of records, <laughs> <laughs> trying to avoid it. And then... Uh, and then I was basically like, I'm not going to, they were trying to get a producer again. And I was like, I'm not going to do this again with another producer because you guys are ready to do this. And I don't feel like, you know, a, a producer is really doing what we are feeling. You know, we got to the end of uh, In on the Kill Taker and I was like, I don't see how that, I mean, it's a perfectly good sounding record. But I understood what those guys were capable of. Now, I can't produce, man. I, I do not have the ears for it. In fact, this ear is ringing at least as loud as we're talking. <laughs> um, that goes on all the time. And I, I just can't, I can't hear things over and over again and then make changes. Like, I'm a different, I learned that I'm a different type of producer. All the sounds are there as they are initially being recorded. And then it's a matter of volume adjustment and panning. That's the kind of producer I am. So, um, knowing that those guys were so intense about it, because I knew all three of them had this experience of, you know, music, well, just the way they talked about music and the way they were so aware of, of what was done on records that I was like, I just refused to do the next record with the producer, and that's why I read Medicine ended up being self-produced. Um, I may not produce it, but I can, I can jump in on that credit. Um, so I kind of was just put my foot down about it because I was like, there, and sure enough, the time had come. And we and so we were super experimental about having those kind of in-between track ideas where basically the studio was going to become a different a different format for art, you know, like you're going to put down your piece of art this way. And then we understood at that time very well what a song we wrote like was going to be like live. 
and we just decided there shouldn't be any fucking problem with how it sounds in the studio and how it sounds live. Um, as long as we knew it was a good piece live, you know, that the core of the song, what was written as the song, and it's not like they were insanely different, they were just, we were just willing to like, you know, go there with different ideas in the studio. So that, yes, that very much began in Red Medicine, and I always feel like it's like this continuation going to end hits from Red Medicine. And then, uh, and then the argument somehow just gets into a different tone altogether, and you know, some, something else happens. And I, I really don't know what that is. I think it's trying to like, it's really trying to get songwriting down and getting, maybe getting kind of precious about it, but also I think making really good calls on how a song should sound, and this is right, this is finished. <laughs> you know, not fucking beating it to death, you know. Right. Um, going into like some nerdier aspects, do you know anything about the the production of the or the actual record, the physical record? It's the only record in the Fugazi catalog to come out on a colored vinyl. It came out on gray. Do you know why that is, or? Uh, and the question is just about it coming out on colored vinyl. Yeah, it's 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 the only one to come out on a different color. I, I have to admit that I totally have no memory of that whatsoever. <laughs> Um, and that it actually then therefore becomes a, a totally legitimate question because <laughs> it's the only one. <laughs> I apologize for not knowing what's going on with my dad. No, that's uh, and plus it was we're talking about something from over twenty years ago now. I know it's and I, and I just don't open records and play them. I I, I have to admit. So I I think it must have had to do with the commodity of it. Like, it must have been an easily accessible thing to pull off at the time. Okay. Uh, it must have started to come into fashion so much that it got presented as, hey, do you want to do this? Because, you know, I don't know, we have this much sitting around that <laughs> we could do something with. I mean, literally, because we were never a band that was going to try to uh, uh, push up the cost of a record, like what it costs to make a record. Because we always wanted the, the, the fans to not have to pay, you know, to make up for that. So I think that it must have just turned into a thing that was easy to do, and we were just like, sure, man, let's fucking do that. Mm -hmm. um, that leads me to the next question. Do you collect records? <laughs> I guess that's an obvious no. <laughs> After not being able to identify the, you know, eccentricities of my own records. Well, yeah, but that's your own. A lot of people don't want to have anything to do with something that they put out. You know, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. It's it's an embarrassing yearbook photo. Unless you're like Axl yeah, Rose or uh, something. No, I couldn't go. I couldn't go deep into that. Um, I love you know. I love having records that I really really like. You know, but uh, at the same time, I've never I've never gone. I just can't. I can't get behind it, you know, to really like invest in the collecting thing. And I, and I just don't like to have, I mean, at this point I'm, I'm almost collecting bases. I have a bunch of bases, but, but they're not even a bunch. I have a bunch of Fender bases, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. I have like three precision bases, you know, but, uh, but I don't like collecting things in general. So no, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to that, I guess. All right, and let's get into some 
things about you personally, um, about picking up the bass. When did you first pick up the bass? I was, uh, I was 19. And, uh, I, the thing was that I had been very serious, uh, as a music listener since I was about nine. And, uh, my next door neighbor, their family was just super, they, my best friend lived next door and he had three older brothers and their parents were just also very supportive of like music being such, a integral part of like everyday life so they were um they had a pegboard in their basement like in the in their like recreation room you know there was a pool table and there was a pegboard on one wall and there there were there were wires coming out of it like you put tools on in a you know in your uh, workroom except there were wires bent out that you could hang singles on and I remember, like, uh, Cold Sweat by James Brown, you know, the little picture of James Brown's face because they were on his label. And, like, uh, I mean, that was just so fucking cool. And we would just listen to those records. So my music, serious music listening began with, like, Otis Redding and Lida Monterey and James Brown, you know. Try a Little Tenderness was literally, like, the first song I really, really went for. There were songs before that that I liked on the radio or something, but playing a song over and over again, you know, it was it was Bruce Redding and then James Brown and you know, it really from there it just it pretty much stayed steeped in black American music, you know, there was it was really just all the R and B and funk and soul. And uh you know there would be Al Green and stuff, but mostly it was like Parliament, Funkadelic, and the Ohio Players, and Sly and Family Stone, and uh, Sly had come to town um, and had Larry Graham open with Graham Central Station, you know, the previous bass player, but then Sly didn't play the show, so this was a night show, so we didn't see that, me and my friend, but his bro- you know, the brother, all his brothers were there, and, and they were like, you know, Sly didn't play, but Graham ended up playing two sets to make up for it. And he played, like, just everything he could think of. And he played Sly and Family Stone songs. And he just kind of became a local... He did well locally, Larry Graham, because of that. So he was played... The black radio stations we were listening to, he was played on that. So that was, like, the first LP I wanted was Graham Central Station. Release Yourself, which is a really weird record. It's like a high-energy gospel record. It's fucking weird shit. Anyway, that is just trying to... Sh- and I'm at, We're talking like I'm 10, 11, you know? So, uh, I'm going to see shows in the afternoon because there were matinee shows at a place that was in the round. And I could, you know, we could see Motown stuff. I saw the OJs, the Four Top Spinners, Isley Brothers, the Jackson Five, in like 1973. So I'd gone through all of that music. I get into junior high school. The second year of junior high school, I started to like, okay, I gotta, I, I just totally like shifted the people I was hanging out with. I started hanging out with bad kids, listening to classic rock. I went heavier rock. That I exhausted in like a couple of years. I was like really looking for something new, and that's when I went to high school, and I met 
people that were listening to punk, and that's when I got into punk. So I, I really had this huge variety of music before I picked up a bass. So I was out of high school when I started to play the bass at 19, and I really had an enormous amount of music to sort of reference, but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I just wrote songs with people. Or, you know, when, so I, I was writing songs with Peter Kortner from Dagnet. He later got into Dagnet. He was a singer. And we had gone to high school together, so we decided to start a band. He said he would sing. I was like, I'll play bass. And that was it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And we just started to put the notes together and write songs. And then eventually the second band we did had a guitar player that could play better than most of the people we played with. And he wrote things, so then I was learning how to play songs he wrote, and occasionally I'd like write a bit in there. Um, but it was really learning to play with you know, people's music. I did not know how to figure out people's records. I didn't even trust myself to play the right notes. So I just didn't do it. And uh, I just didn't know what I was doing. Then I injured my hand at work in like 1984 and didn't play for about a year. And then started to try to play again and try to get bands going. And I just couldn't get anything going with people. And bought a drum set, tried to play drums. And then I went on tour with Beefeater as a roadie in 1986. Coming back from that, I really didn't have any hope to be in a band because I thought they were a great band and nobody was really paying attention to them. So, And then they broke up. So I really didn't have much hope. I thought I'd be a, a roadie, you know. And then Ian asked me to play, and he never saw me play bass. So that was uh, just the weird thing that happened that started Fugazi. Where did um, the reggae and dub influence come for you? That just, you know, I, I'd been listening to that music, but it was, it was probably through my idea of how bass functioned in music. One of the reasons that I... You know, I had been thinking for years at that point because since, you know, 78 or 79 in high school, listening to all the punk bands and bands like Pink Section where you were like, you know, they, that was a San Francisco band, where you're like, you know, they, they don't know how to play. Like, they don't know what they're doing. You know, and this is awesome. You know, I, I love their music. That's when I was like, I can be in a band. But I didn't really understand what I would do. And I kind of thought I would play drums because I had a good friend that played drums. So I could sit behind his drum set once in a while. And I was like, you don't even need a whole drum set, you know? Like, my friend played, like, you know, Zeppelin and Van Halen and shit. So I, I was kind of like, you don't even need all these drums. So I, <laughs> I, can do, I can do something, you know? But then it took years, and so then I ended up in a band on playing bass, but it was really, by that point, it was like, I can play bass because of getting into Peter Hook and Jaw Wobble. It was really hearing that stuff that really started to cement what the bass was doing in a song, and I was relating to it, even though I couldn't, I probably couldn't make it a viable thing on, you know, paper, but in my mind, there was, a, there was a connection between all of the R&B and funk that I was listening to way back and the repetition that was going on in um, both Joy Division 
in public image. And really, you know, if you see public image, I saw them a, a few years ago, like three years ago here in D.C. And even the version of the band at that point, essentially underlying everything was, it was almost as if it was disco. It was almost as if, oh, cat, oh, cat was underneath everything in a perfectly, you know, beautiful way, because that's what's underneath, like, if you go see Funkadelic, you know, I went to see Funkadelic with Ian once, and uh, I remember after about an hour and a half, I, something had changed, and I was like, my God, what happened? It's like my heart stopped beating. And it was because the drummer got up, and he had just been keeping this thing going, with all these people going on stage with guitars, looking for a cabinet to plug into, and all these people playing and singing, all, all this shit was going on, but underneath it all was this fucking awesome, you know, beat that was, everyone was, you know, building grooves around. Anyway, you know, it really pointed to the conception of music for me, and obviously, dub is the obvious thing to look at. If you're going to look at bass-directing music, because dub is like stripping back music that's been written with vocals, but the, the point of the guitar in that music is almost rhythmic, you know? It's just timekeeping, chord changing, timekeeping, but the bass is carrying this melody, you know? And then dub is, of course, reducing it all to the bass and the beat, and um, the vocals don't even matter anymore. It's just like a total re- construction of the song, which in itself is another thing that teaches you about, you know, or asks the question, what is music, you know, much less answer it, but it, the important thing is that it's, it appears to be asking that question, like, what exactly makes a song, you know, to, so to sit at the board and have finished music that you then deconstruct is a pretty fucking cool concept. So all that stuff appealed to me. There was a station here that you could hear late at night. A guy would play. Um, he had, there was a dub show at night. There was a couple of DJs, people I got to know later. When I was in Fugazi, there was still a guy living in town that played some of that stuff that, um, that I listened to, you know, in 79, 80, 81. Yeah, I mean, your bass lines definitely... It's crazy hearing like something maybe Ian wrote that sounds like kind of hardcore, and then you've got your bouncy, kind of dub reggae-ish bassline holding it down and keeping it fresh and interesting. It's one of the more. Yeah, it's just having. It's it's it. It brings. It, I guess it brings the flavor of that, and it's what it really is is this idea of kind of a counterpoint that the guitar can do this melody, but the bass can do this melody. It's just how you set them off with each other, you know, and I just, I just liked that repetition. I like, I like the, the hypnotic aspect of that and the trance aspect of that. Yeah, and it, it shows through, like even getting into later projects like uh, Ataxia. Ataxia sounds to me like the, there's a first song on that first record that sounds like PIL, like it just, it just has that vibe. Yeah, so yeah, that record is almost too much of a uh, Joy Division public image investigation. But that record, you have to remember that that was supposed to be a project that we were playing a live show, and so I had to remember 10 songs that 
that we were going to play in like a week. You know, and I'm not good at that. So I was trying to keep them really simple. Plus, the whole thing was based on the fact that I was going to write a baseline and they were going to have to do the changes around one baseline. It was like an assignment. And they were reacting to that kind of, they were like, yes, that's our, that's what our objective will be. And we'll write music for this. And then, it, then it, he was, you know, John was like, do you want to record this stuff? So two days before we play live, we're recording it, you know, and that became two albums. So it's just weird that it even exists, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very cool. And it's, it's a lot different from like, even, I think around that time was the Decahedron record, I believe was around that same time. Yeah, that, and that probably, I worked on that really while Fugazi was still playing, but people, everyone in Fugazi was like, leaving me alone because I just had a kid. But Shelby would come over the house and we would just sit in front of my kid while she was like, just, you know, yelling and running around. And, and we would just sit and work on music, but no one in the band would do that. So I was like, okay, I'll make music with Shelby. <laughs> yeah, that's well, a cool record too. Like all And all your solo stuff, it's just... Thanks for all of it, and thanks for answering my questions. Um, appreciate it. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you're getting something out of it. That's awesome. Speaking of bass, you said you've been collecting. Uh, is the uh, Ernie Ball still around? The Music Man? You know, just the, the re one of the reasons I hadn't played it for a long time is it needed to be refretted. Oh. And uh, I had somebody um, I got in touch with who had made me a, a, a bass, and then... He was like, what's going on with your music? And I was like, you know, it needs to be refreshed. I just don't know if I'm ever going to do it. And he was just like, I'll do it. And that, I, I ended up sending it to him. And then he was like, look, why don't we auction off the, the frets? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's really weird. But I understood that that was something that people, you know, will pay for or something. And then he suggested that we, that we do that and raise money for something. So I was like... That's if you can make that thing happen, and you can raise money, man. I'm all for it. I, I miss that about Fugazi. We play all our local shows. We get to raise money. So I told him to find a to find a black-owned restaurant in his area. He's in Nashville, so it would kind of tie his business with a, another local business because most black-owned restaurants are literally family put together. They're like they don't get a loan from a bank. They have less of a chance of getting a loan from a bank because that is the world that we live in so I said let's let's do that whatever's raised just go in and explain it to them and hand them a bunch of money whatever you get from that we might be able to get a thousand bucks out of it we'll see from what he said I was shocked but I was like shit let's do that well, that's that's great that's, that's still being done yeah that's that's in his hands so well, kind of piggybacking off of that, and, and I apologize in advance for this question, um, but have, after the last administration, even the Bush years, uh, did Fugazi ever think about, not like reforming and getting the whole machine up and running and touring and stuff, but like doing a record or a single for, you know, any kind of charity or, or any organization to raise awareness? Was that something that um, ever... No, just it's, it turns out that for us to function, it's really, it appears that it is really hard for the band to function um, on, on a, like a minimal level, shall we say. 
Like, it's really hard for Fugazi to just kind of do some stuff or to do, like, one thing. Like, let's, let's write and record a record that we're going to benefit the blah, blah, blah with. Like, we, we can't just do a thing. We, we need... I mean, the big problem is I lived away for a long time, and then uh, I'm back, but Guy has been living in Brooklyn for a really long time now. And so that sets us physically apart, and it, that is probably the biggest problem. That if we were all living in the same city, there might be a chance of something... I, you know, I can't really say even if we all lived here, but there's way better chance if we're all near each other of making something happen, but it's it's just, we're just not a band that can function part of the way. So it's like waking, I always prefer to like, compare it to like waking a, a, a sleeping gigantic, you know, animal. And if you're going to wake it up and then not really feed it, then it's going to fucking eat you, you know. <laughs> and you're not going to survive. So we just don't wake it up because it'll kill us. And we don't, we don't want to be, like, murdered as a band, you know what I mean? It'll literally be like the death of the band to, to try to kind of... I mean, it's, for us, it's kind of like faking it, and we just can't do that. We can't part, partially do it. It's either all the way and figure out what we are now, like, what song, can we play old songs? What, who are we? But we'd have to, like, write songs, be happy with them, practice, play, play old songs, see what we think about those, construct the idea of what we would play if we're going to go play live, you know, go play live, like kind of experiment by playing it in front of people, you know, find out what we are now. That that requires like a ton of time together. It's just not happening. Oh know? yeah, I didn't think that you guys would be, you know, like setting up a reunion tour or anything. I was just wondering if you were ever tempted to, you know do another show in front of the White House when all these protests were going on or, or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. It's like, it, that's why that doesn't even get on the table. You know what I mean? That's, we just can't, we can't do that. <laughs> we just can't, like, you know, some, I mean, there are definitely times where I was like, I wish, I wish we were the kind of band that could just you know, go practice together for a while, and yes, go play like a protest show somewhere. But we just can't, it just would be kind of full of shit, you know, and a weird performance. We just couldn't do it, so we don't. I respect that, and uh, again, thanks. Thanks for everything. No problem, man. Good to see you, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the Private Press Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with our track-by-track analysis of Fugazi's end hits. Mm.